You're listening to Hidden History, and I'm your host, Ellis Tucci. If you know any way that we can improve our content for you, the listener, drop us a line at hiddenhistory.show forward slash contact. Check out all our past episodes on www.hiddenhistory.show and learn something new today. This week is the final episode of Season 2, and I wanted to try something a little bit different. Tomorrow I am giving a talk on the political nature of architecture. If you want me to keep doing episodes like this, let me know. So, without further ado, this is Hidden History, and you're listening to Episode 32. The Secret Lives of Buildings. One of them is in Rome, the other downtown Manhattan. They were built almost two decades apart, but they might be linked by philosophy. The Palazzo della Civilità Italiana, or the Square Colosseum, was built in 1942 for the Italian World's Fair. Mussolini commissioned it as a symbol of fascism and fascist ideals. It's built in a style called stripped classicism, which involved removing all ornamentation in order to create a sleek and imposing facade. On the other side of the ocean is the Seagram Building in Manhattan. Finished in 1958, it was designed by Mies van der Rohe and Philip Johnson, two modernist architects that changed the way we think about modern architecture. Philip Johnson was an American Nazi. In fact, he was such an ardent supporter of Hitler that he was deemed one of the top American fascist intellectuals before the outbreak of the Second World War. Van der Rohe was a German-born architect that attempted to work within the Nazi system before ultimately leaving for America in 1937. He signed a motion of support for Hitler in 1934. Van der Rohe was not a member of the Nazi party, but he was an opportunist. But design does not exist in a vacuum. Architects are influenced by their environments. So is it merely coincidental that these two vastly different architects, both with fascist links, should in tandem design monolithic and imposing buildings free of ornamentation? Well, if we reach that conclusion now, then this would be a pretty short episode. In reality, the truth is a lot more nuanced than it might seem. The Bauhaus was one of the most important architectural and design schools in the 20th century. Its designs were meant to convey honesty and truth. Its ethos involved the creation of good objects that were efficient mass-produced and beautiful. The first two heads of the Bauhaus, Walter Gropius and Hannes Meyer, thought that the Bauhaus design theory went hand-in-hand with socialist political theory, and so under the leadership of these men, architects and designers who learned from the Bauhaus masters learned to design while incorporating political messages. Mies van der Rohe was brought on as the third head of the Bauhaus in order to make the school apolitical. 
The apolitical nature that Van der Rohe introduced allowed industrial modernist elements to percolate through the architecture of Nazi Germany, and slowly the architecture of the Third Reich, which was initially a mix of pastoral German sentimentalism and Teutonic Gothic, started to become more and more monolithic, more flat, and restrained. In Italy, fascist architecture is a direct descendant from the ideals of Italian futurism, which was popular before the First World War. But in Germany, I would argue that the root of the prevalence of stripped classic fascist architecture is the popularity of the Bauhaus. The apolitical aim achieved under van der Rohe's stewardship of the Bauhaus kept it alive in a hostile environment for a bit longer but at the same time allowed some of its architectural elements to be incorporated into the aesthetic of fascism. Ironically, early Bauhaus designs are inseparable from socialism, while later design elements were adopted by those that strived to eliminate socialism. Design does not evolve in a vacuum. Progress is not linear. The simple mass-produced pro-socialist nature of Bauhaus design didn't die with the closing of the school in 1933. It continued on, interacting with new ideals and ideas, eventually forming something new, novel, simple, and concrete. In France, an architect by the name of Le Corbusier was frustrated with the economic inequality that had been continually pushing poor Parisians into shanty towns on the edge of the city while the rich aggregated in the downtown. In response, he developed something called the Plan Voisin. It would have flattened two square miles of central Paris and replaced it with 18 identical glass towers that would be surrounded by open space. The tower in the park model that would be used in the coming decades was born. This reimagining of Paris was inspired by the ideals of equality, fairness, and honesty. That is what these buildings were trying to represent. The term brutalism would not be coined until 1947, but this development proposal put forth by Le Corbusier embodied brutalist ideals. But there is one major difference. The root of the term brutalism is in the French word béton pru, meaning raw concrete. Le Corbusier's towers were made of glass. There's an architectural parallel to Le Corbusier's early modernist style happening in the same time in Russia. It's called constructivism, and it's based around this interesting notion that art can be procedurally, well, constructed. Constructivism first came about in 1913, had the same ideological motivations, and also had features that would later be found in the brutalist works constructed throughout the former Soviet Union. And it's no coincidence. Le Corbusier was well versed in Soviet constructivism. He even submitted an entry into the 1932 competition to design the Palace of the Soviets. So ultimately, Later down the line in the 50s and 60s, the new updated combination of those styles emerges in brutalism. Brutalist thought followed that if a building did not hide what it was made of, rather proudly displayed its components that it would be honest, unpretentious, and intellectually accessible. This is something called truth to materials, and it's part of a greater trend in structural expressionism. 
in the post-war reconstruction boom, a lot needed to be built, and brutalism was also cheaper than a lot of other options. As a result, it found huge popularity in places like England. In the UK, one of the biggest proponents of brutalism was an architect named Erno Goldfinger, and he used brutalism to paint massive concrete tower blocks across the London skyline. Given the very human ideals that brutalism embodies, it was assumed that it would make a good residential environment. In the brutalist tower blocks and housing estates of London, it turned out that that was not true. People did not like living in monolithic concrete spaces. But the point is, in Europe, brutalism was largely used in a residential context. And even though the superstructures were concrete, the architects included details that made the residential nature of the space outwardly obvious. After all, these were buildings that were supposed to be honest, open, equal, humble, and beautiful, all at the same time. I would argue that this residential focus changes drastically when brutalism jumped over the Atlantic. Brutalism in a residential context almost always means a large housing project, and the United States already had its own way of designing large housing projects. They're those hulking, cruciform towers of brick like Co-op City in New York or pruitt Igo in St. Louis. We didn't need brutalism in our residential buildings. So in America, brutalism is largely used on government buildings or centers of power. Does this change from using brutalism in an open, honest, human way to a governmental way change the ideals behind the architecture? I would argue that yes, it does. Brutalism in the American context is not meant to be open, honest, or approachable. I would argue that the augmentation of brutalist architecture with government power imbues it with an air of authoritarianism. In the American context, brutalism is meant to be intimidating, powerful, and ominous. The stylings of the J. Edgar Hoover Building and Boston City Hall seem to support this. The buildings themselves are constructed like fortresses. Boston City Hall is a practically upside-down pyramid balanced by concrete stilts. You have to be completely covered, enveloped, and dominated by the building before you can even enter it. The J. Edgar Hoover Building is the headquarters of the FBI, who undoubtedly incorporate the ideals of strength, secrecy, and security into the design of their buildings. Another example of this would be 33 Thomas Street, a concrete skyscraper in downtown Manhattan that doesn't have a single window. It's a telecommunications hub for AT&T, and supposedly the location of an NSA spying center. 33 Thomas Street is not meant to convey openness and accessibility. It's meant to convey power, security, and control. But could it be argued that architecture in general is not inherently political, but only gains this pejorative aspect through our implementation of architectural systems? I would disagree with that premise. Design does not exist in a vacuum. Whole buildings don't exist in the ether, just waiting to be plucked out by some enterprising architect. Buildings are purpose-built by people who have very specific design goals and philosophies in mind. 
Buildings are not a blank slate on which we can impose a web of invisible politics and ideas. They are incorporated into the placement of every brick and every girder. Ideals, goals, and political motivations are baked into the very DNA of the constructed world. What's one good example of this? Highways. Highways are political. The road itself is a mere extension of the state. They have been since ancient times, when what marked the territory of the Roman Empire was the presence of Roman roads. Highways are not constructed outside of the state. Highways, especially the city-spanning highways of the 1950s and 1960s, were and are constructed using eminent domain, which has historically been used to level poor and underrepresented communities. A lot of these communities were full of immigrants and people of color. This method for dealing with poverty, flattening vast swaths of land and relocating the former residents to public housing projects was called slum clearance during its use throughout the 20th century. Whatever remained of these poor neighborhoods was made infinitely worse by the construction of the highway itself. Their vast concrete decks bathed entire communities in endless shadows. The presence of the highway alone destroyed far more than just what lay in its immediate path. These were neighborhoods that had been intentionally kept in systemic poverty by a government that would later destroy them in order to solve, as governments are wont to call it, urban blight. Highways have been used as a political tool to empty out thriving communities seemingly in the blink of an eye. They have been used to perpetuate conditions of systemic poverty, and they have been used to create the suburbs, which we'll get to in a bit. Therefore, highways are political. The way they are designed is political. The way they are implemented is political. The reason that this might not have occurred to us at large is because we perceive the past to have had this idealistic sense of oneness embodying all of the American people. This perception really only exists because history is not widely taught or recorded from the perspective of marginalized or underrepresented groups. We are taught that the 1950s and 60s, when these massive construction projects took place, were a decade where everyone was rich, happy, and welcoming of the changes in their urban environment. When we accept this myth, we are accepting the narrative of the people that these highways were built for, people who did not see their negative effects, as absolute truth. When we accept this myth, we are accepting the narrative that the mid-20th century was white, middle-class, and suburban. Nothing could be further from the truth. Well, that was a preview of a talk that I'm giving tomorrow night. If you thought that it was interesting or thought that it was a cool episode, like this episode, share it with your friends, and be sure to let me know, and I can keep doing more. I can't wait to start season three, coming up soon. The music in this week's episode was performed by Artificial.Music. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History, signing off.